A few notes as we start uh, this this evening. Uh, you're going to need your Bible. We're going through uh, Genesis 12 to 22. This is the first sermon in a, in a series of about 18 to 20 sermons we'll do through the rest of the book of Genesis. And we're going to basically do Genesis 23 through 50. But in order to understand Genesis 23 through 50, it all depends on the first 10 chapters, basically Abraham's story, Abraham's narrative. So you're going to need your Bible today because we're going to be going through 10, 11 chapters of the Bible at a fast kind of overview pace. And what I, what I, what we're going to be doing, you're going to need your Bible because we're going to be kind of doing uh, the breaststroke this evening. We're going to be dipping down into scripture and then breathing up for air and deep, dipping down and breathing up for air and dipping down and breathing up. So you're going to be in and out and in and out and in and out of your Bible. And this service, this sermon will be a lot more enjoyable to you if you have your Bible open and you're reading along. If you don't, it's going to be very long and maybe a bit boring. So I don't want that to be boring for you. And I know... You don't want that either. So get your Bible out, and we will be on page 13. The great thing about this sermon, or this service, is that uh, this is one of the few uh, talks you'll have where most of the chapters actually line up with the page number. So I think besides, uh, we're in chapter 12 to start, which is on page 13. But I think the rest of the time, every page is on the exact same chapter it's on. So look at there. Um, Lastly, you have an outline uh, of the sermon. It's really not an outline of the sermon as, it, as, as much as it, as it is an outline of the text itself. That will help you guide, help guide you through the sermon. So please, it should, there's two or three on each pew. So please get those out and, and, and uh, take notice of those during the sermon. <clears throat> so Genesis 12 to 22. These 11 chapters hold the foundation for the rest of the entire grand narrative of Scripture. The covenant God made with Abraham forms the background of the new covenant God made with Jesus. The Abraham story is kind of like the prequel to all that comes after him. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers. But even more... I'm suggesting to you tonight that Abraham and his story is the prequel to Jesus and the gospel itself. But as always, the story didn't even start here with Abraham. To understand the Abraham story, you have to know what happened in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in his garden. The garden was sacred ground Why? Because it was the place where God was uniquely present. It was God's kingdom in miniature form on earth. And then Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and God places his image in the garden to represent his rule, his kingship. It's as if God is putting his little ambassadors of his kingdom on earth to reflect his rule. But do you remember what God told Adam and Eve to do in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. You'll hear those words over and over and over and over again throughout the whole book of Genesis. The borders of the garden, the borders of the kingdom were intended to grow and grow until they extended far beyond their original borders and subsumed the whole world. God's kingdom was to take over the entire world. But we know the story, don't we? We know the result. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and he banished them from his presence. They didn't reflect him. They weren't. They didn't look like him or represent him to the world. So where does that leave us? The story has a, a, a tipping point here. This, was, this is what we'd call the, the, the initiation point in the story, right? It's the conflict that needs resolution. Are we going to forever be banished from God's presence? Is there any way to redeem humanity, to get us back into the garden where we reflected God rightly and enjoyed his presence? The good news is that God did design a plan. 
But it's a slow-moving plan to bring us back into the garden. And he starts out by calling a new Adam of sorts. And his name is Abraham. You're going to hear me use the word covenant a lot. It's a really important word in the Bible, and it's an even more important word in this story. Part of God's plan to bring humanity back into the presence involves covenant, you see. God is going to make covenants with various people in order to make new relationships with those peoples. It's his mechanism of making new relationships. It's like a marriage covenant. It brings unrelated people, two unrelated people, into a new, intimate relationship with promises on the one hand and obligations on the other hand. Covenants form, this mechanism forms the backbone of Scripture, the larger narrative of Scripture. And it forms the structure and the backbone of this narrative with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and it's very important. But then what is it? What are these covenants? Well, just quickly, in the ancient Near East, this this book was written in a time we called the ancient Near East. It's a long, long, long time ago. Kings and rulers often made covenants with other people. It's kind of like an ancient version of a contract, right? But these covenants had a certain script they would follow. And they followed them pretty consistently. And we actually see that script in this in these ten chapters. First, there was a stronger party who, who um, offers a promise of a new relationship with a, with a weaker party. And they expect that weaker party to have loyalty or obedience in return. Then there's a covenant ceremony with blessings for obedience and curses for breaking the covenant. Then the covenant is sealed with a symbol, right? In, in, uh, in, if, the, if the previous part is the exchanging of the vows, this would be the receiving of the ring as a symbol on the marriage covenant. And then it's sealed with an oath. This is, I do, correct? Well, we see this. You don't have to write all this down. But we see this in the first 11 chapters, or in, in, from Genesis 12 to 22, at the most important points. Genesis 12, God gives a promise of blessing to Abraham. Chapter 15, God makes the covenant. He performs a ceremony. Chapter 17, God confirms this covenant with the sign of circumcision. And chapter 22, God confirms it with an oath after he sees Abraham's obedience. The covenant is going to be very important to understanding the purpose of this whole narrative, and that's why we're taking time to look at it. So in Genesis 12 to 22, God chooses one man and one family as his own, and he plans to restore all of humanity back to his presence through this one man and this one family. The Abraham story can be broken then into two acts. The first act, Genesis 12 to 14, the story focuses on Abraham receiving of the promised land, and the latter half, focuses on him receiving a child who will become a great nation. If there's one main point of this text and one main point of this sermon, it's that God is slowly beginning to restore his people back to his presence through one family. So act one, restoring God's place Abraham is in the promised land. In chapter 12, God gives covenant promises to Abraham, and we read about those in verses 1 through 5. This is page 13. Read with me. Verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. And they arrived there. Quick note. Uh, about halfway through the story, Abram's name is going to change to Abraham. 
I wrote it about 13 different ways in my manuscript. And so I just decided, I'm gonna, when I'm reading, I'll say Abram, but I'm just going to say Abraham the rest of the time. Just so you know, if you get confused, Abram is Abraham. God chooses one man, and he's going to begin restoring his kingdom through him. But you might be asking, why Abraham? Was he particularly holy? Particularly impressive? Was Maybe he was from a long line of God-fearers. No, in fact, Abraham came from a pagan land. Joshua 24.2 tells us that his family worshipped other gods. So God calls this pagan idolater and says, you're going to be the one through whom I restore my purposes on earth. Now, leave your country, leave your family, leave everything that's precious to you, and go to a land that you know nothing about. Some of you have felt that. Maybe not a direct revelation from God, but you felt what that feels like. It's not easy. But God gives him an incredible list of promises that will accompany with him into the land. And these promises form the foundation for the rest of the book of Genesis. He first says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. God's going to make a new kingdom of people that will descend from Abraham. This means he's going to need loads of kids. And that means his kids are going to need loads of kids. And their kids are going to need loads of kids. So he's going to have to have a really long list of children and grandchildren. But it also means they're going to need a place to dwell. And you see that promised place in, show up in verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram, verse 7, and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he's got a great nation. God's going to give him a piece of land. He's going to, he's, he's going to bless you. To have God's blessing means to have his presence with you. He's going to make your name great. And the name in those, in those days isn't a mere identifier. Like, you refer to me as Luke. That doesn't mean a whole lot. No, it signified someone's character in those days. So he's going to give them a whole new frame of reference, new character. Lastly, he's going to make you, Abraham, into a conduit of blessing to the world. Read the second half of verse 2 through 3. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is really significant. You get to see a glimpse into God's long restoration plan. Abraham and his family are going to become God's favored nation on earth. And they're going to represent God's kingdom on earth, and his character on earth, for this purpose. So that they can bring God's blessing, namely his presence, his kingdom, to the whole world. Abraham's family is going to do what Adam and Eve should have done but did not do. Extend the borders of Eden to the whole world. It's a pretty big and amazing task. So Abram, an amazing act of trust, leaves everything he loves and he travels to the land of Canaan, this mysterious land that God has promised to him. He builds an altar and worships God there. But from the very start, there are some roadblocks to these promises taking place. We read in in chapter 11 that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. That's a bit problematic if you're going to be have a great big family that's going to turn into a great big nation. And we're left wondering, how in the world is God going to do this with someone who is a, used to be a pagan idolater and now has a barren wife? And he's a sojourner in another land. But there's another roadblock, and it's introduced in scene 2. Chapter 12, 10 through 13, 2. Famine in the land deliverance from Egypt. So Abraham finally gets into the, to the edge of the promised land. He settles there, and then, of course, there's a massive famine. As if Sarah's barrenness isn't bad, now the land he's dwelling in is barren as well. So Abraham's got to decide. Am I going to trust God and seek for provision in the land God's given me, or am I going to leave and try to seek provision elsewhere? 
Well, Abraham moves his family down to Egypt because of the famine. And we just begin his, see, to see his faith just unravel. You see, Abraham's wife is, is, is beautiful. And he's a foreigner. Apparently this was common at the time. He's a foreigner in a strange country. And he's worried, if I go into that strange country and, and, the, and the royal court sees my wife, they're going to kill me as the husband and take her into the, as, as one of the Pharaoh's many wives. So they devise a plan to protect himself but exploit Sarah and endanger God's promise at the same time. They decide to pretend Sarah is his sister and not his wife. But do you see how disastrous this could be? In Pharaoh's court, she'll be forced into an adulterous relationship with Pharaoh. And they'll be risking having Pharaoh's child instead of Abraham's child. Verses 14 through 16 tell us what happened next. Read with me, verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and, and, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. So Abram, <coughs> Abraham risks his wife's dignity, jeopardizes the promises of God, but God will not let Abraham's lack of faith be the end of the story. God sends a disease into Pharaoh's household, and somehow Pharaoh learns that this disease is a result of him having this, this other woman in his harem. So Pharaoh gives Abraham his wife back and basically says, get out of here, Abraham. So much for being a, a reflection of God to the nations, huh? In the next scene, Abraham and his nephew Lot return to the promised land. Abraham's now a really wealthy guy. He's got tons of sheep and tons of cattle, tons of flock. And so his possessions need to be separated from Lot's because there's a little bit of skirmish going on. So Abraham, although older and far richer, gives Lot the first choice of the land. And Lot, his nephew, scans the land looking for a dwelling place for his family, and he, he chooses a land out east. He looks at the land out east. It's a fertile land near the bustling city of Sodom, just beyond the border of the promised land. What does that mean? What is the narrator telling us? Well, the clues are subtle, but the narrator, narrator is contrasting Abraham and Lot. Abraham will choose his land by faith in the God's promise. Lot chooses according to what he can see. Fertile land, exciting metropolis, even though Sodom is teeming with all kinds of wickedness. And it's outside of the promised land. Abraham responds, sets up an altar, worships God, and God says, I'm going to give you all this land. Look out, I'm going to give it all to you. So we start seeing a little bit of a contrast and comparison contrast between Abraham and Lot. Well, as the narrative continues, Abraham keeps on meeting conflict in this promised land. A small war breaks out between two groups of kings, and the king of Sodom is on the losing side of that, of that war. Well, Lot and his family and all his possessions get taken by the, the, the enemy kings and taken up north. Abraham hears about it, gathers all the men in his house. Apparently, he had a very big house at this point with lots of servants and, and whatnot. And he gathers a little army. He goes up and defeats the kings, rescues Lot. And then the story is interesting. And notice that, that he doesn't take the plunder like all the other kings. And then he actually praises God for the victory instead of taking the praise himself. One author comments that this story is significant because Abraham moves from a cowardly man who endangers his wife just two scenes earlier now to a conquering warrior who rescues his family and trusts God and gives God the glory for the victory. Just two chapters later, we see Abraham moving from faithless to faithful, perhaps. But there's a major transition oh, sorry, 
There's a major transition that happens in chapter 15 between Act 1 and Act 2. God makes his covenant with Abraham. Chapter 15 marks the midpoint of the narrative. Abraham is settled in the promised land, but he only has a small portion of it. He's still considered a foreigner in the land. Even more, he's getting older and older and older, and it looks less and less likely like he'll ever have this great family, let alone a single child. Enter God in chapter one, or in verse one of chapter fifteen, page fifteen. After this, read with me. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man, Eliezer, he will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Then the Lord took him outside and said, Look up at the sky. Count the stars, if you can indeed count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham encounters God on a personal level in this chapter. He's afraid. God says, I'm your shield, I'm your protection. He's lost hope. I don't even have a true heir to receive all these promises. God gives him a vivid picture. Look at this nice sky. If you can count those stars, you can't. That's what I'm going to make your family like. Look at verse 6 to see Abraham's response. It's the centerpiece of this entire narrative. Abram believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram, with all his doubts, his fears, his lapses in judgment, demonstrates a settled faith against the odds here. To enter God's presence, you need to be righteous. You need to be wholly devoted to God, a faithful covenant partner. Abraham his obedience and commitment wavered from scene to scene, as you can already see, and they're going to continue to do so. But this is a bedrock for Abraham to lean on. God reckoned Abraham's faith in the promise as righteousness. And this righteousness allows him to receive God's covenant promises to him. He's now righteous, he's now a faithful partner. Christians, do you know that the New Testament says the same thing about you? You can only enter into God's presence. Think e eternal life. If you are righteous before God. That's bad news. <laughs> for me and for you, because not one person in this room is righteous. The only hope for us is if God reckons, considers us righteous on the basis of what something or someone else has done for us. It's not only important that Jesus died for us, but that he also lived a righteous life for us. You see on the cross, there's a divine transaction happening. I have given Christ on the cross, all my unrighteousness, and God is judging him for my unrighteousness. Jesus, then, on the cross, is giving his perfect righteousness to me and to you. And God delights in us because of his righteousness. God reckons, sees us as righteous now, only because of what Jesus provided. 
That's why when somebody asks you, I get this question all the time, what is Christianity all about anyways? We don't say it's really about just kind of like being a good person. Absolutely not. It's about one good person. And it's about attaching ourselves, our identity, our complete dependence on that one person. Abraham is now reckoned righteous before God and can now partner with God in a covenant relationship. So in the rest of this chapter, we see the ceremony, the covenant. God actually makes the covenant with Abraham. Let's read starting in verse 7 of chapter 15. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Do you remember that script, that covenant script for all ancient covenants we talked about earlier? The stronger party would promise blessings or land to the weaker party in exchange for obedience and loyalty of the weaker party. Well, there was a ceremony that followed that that was a symbolic act where they would take the animals in the ancient covenants and they would cut them into halves. And what would happen is both parties, the stronger and the weaker party, would walk through the covenants to symbolically say this. So may this happen to me. What's happened to these animals? If I don't keep my end of the covenant. In fact, the word make a covenant literally is to cut a covenant. From this, to cut the animals, to cut a covenant. But in verse 17, we read that a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through between the pieces. The smoking fire pot with a blazing torch is a symbol for God's presence. I, I, could, I could take you to the book of Exodus and show you why that is, but I don't have the time. But do you notice... Oh, sorry, I went... Do you notice who doesn't pass through the animal parts in this ceremony? You can yell it out. God does. Abraham does not. It's as if God is saying, Abraham, if you don't hold your part of the covenant, may these curses come upon me. I'm not sure if Abraham at this stage understood the significance of what God is doing in the ceremony. But there's already a hint that God would take the curse of our unfaithfulness on himself so that we could have a covenant relationship with him. Act 2. God is going to show how he's restoring his people And it's going to be all about Abraham and the promised child. Ten years pass as we head into chapter 16. Abraham and and Sarah are still living in the land, but it feels like God has fallen silent. They're getting older and older and still no pregnancy. And this time they try to manufacture God's promises themselves. They don't want to wait on God anymore. Let's read what happens in chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. 
So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build my family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram had been living in Canaan ten years. Sarai, his wife, took... So, sorry. After Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave into your arms, and now that she knows I am pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. So she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near near the spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. She answered, then the, Lord, sorry, then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This episode shows us the essence of sin. Failure to trust God is at the very core of what it means to rebel against God. But I hope you're sympathetic been 10 years. Sarah's getting older and older. She has a monthly reminder that she is barren. The pain and fear she must have been feeling should not be underestimated. But she should have gone to God for counsel and reassurance. Instead, she takes matters into her own hands. I'll make my husband commit adultery, but at the very least, I'll have an heir to receive all these promises. And Abraham isn't any better, is he? After showing incredible faith in chapter 16, he totally abdicates responsibility here. He sleeps with Hagar, and she gets pregnant. And then you start seeing immediate conflict in this family, and that conflict will continue, as we'll find out in the next 18 sermons. Hagar now feels that she has the upper hand. She even refers to Sarah as her mistress. She's not even the wife of, of Abraham. Sarah, no children, shamed by her slave, now wants to exact revenge on Hagar. So she shames her as well and kicks her out of the house. Abraham has lost total control of his family. He doesn't guide Sarah to do what's right. He doesn't protect Hagar, who is carrying his child. And he doesn't protect the son he has in her womb. He just says, Sarah, do whatever you you want with her. Well, the Lord protects Hagar in the wilderness. Gives her a promise that her son will have numerous descendants and she'll have a great family as well. Then he tells her to go back to Abraham's household where she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And at the start of chapter 17, 13 additional years have passed. Abraham is now 99 years old. Hope seems even more distant than it was in chapter 16. And God appears once again. He confirms his covenant with a sign this time. One more part of the covenant script is coming out. Read with me in chapter 17, verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant is in your flesh. It is to be an everlasting covenant. 
any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be called Sarah. I will bless her, and I will surely give you a son by her. I will, I will bless so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah be bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing, God. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants. And as for Ishmael, I have, I have heard you. I will surely bless him, I will make him fruitful, and I will, give, I will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. And Abraham, in the following verses, obeys God immediately and circumcises all his sons and his household. The sign of God's covenant, the symbol, like the marriage ring, is circumcision. It's a marker. Circumcision marks off those people in covenant with God from those who are not in covenant with God. Like the marriage ring marks me off to Sarah from all other men, circumcision marks Abraham and his descendants off from the world. They alone are in a special covenant relationship with God. Every son that's born into the family, every servant that comes into the family, is to be marked off physically. And this is God's symbolic but physical reminder to Israel and the world that these specific people represent God's kingdom. You know, we're not under the old covenant anymore because Christ has established a new one. But did you know that God has commanded us his people, his church, to be marked off from the world as well. When we enter into God's covenant community, that's the church, we aren't marked off by circumcision, but by baptism. Baptism, like some circumcision, is God's way of showing the world and the church who is in a covenant relationship with him. It shows them whose God's people are. The church is marked off by baptism and then corresponding membership to show the world who's, where God's kingdom is and what it looks like. Baptism, like circumcision was, if you don't do this, you're going to be cut off, isn't optional. It's not functionless. No, it has a very vital function to the life and the witness of the church. Moving on, in the next scene, three visitors are sent from the Lord in chapter 18, and they come to Abraham's house to give him very specific news about when his son will be born. In verse 10 they say, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Well, in chapter 18, Sarah's... Sarah's in the tent. She's overhearing this conversation. And like Abraham in the previous chapter, she laughs. Says, verse 12, After I am worn out and my husband is old, will I now have this pleasure? She's just lost all hope. And the Lord responds so graciously to her in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. God just continues his relentless pursuit of faithless people. People who actually oscillate between faith and faithlessness in almost every scene. As we near the end of the story, we're expecting good news. But once again, Abraham and his wife find themselves traveling outside in in the scenes 4 and 5. I think specifically in scene 5 in chapter 20. They find themselves uh, traveling outside the promised land once again. And they pull the exact same stunt they did in Egypt. They lie lie and say Sarah isn't Abraham's sister. She goes into King Abimelech's harem. God warns the king about Sarah. and, And he rescues Sarah by warning the king. It's just one act of final unfaithfulness on Abraham and Sarah's part right before God is going to fulfill the promise about their son. You probably noticed that there is a running theme throughout this story. Abraham's and Sarah, God's chosen instruments to restore humanity, are identified by both faithfulness and faithlessness. Throughout their lives. At times, Abraham shows incredible faith against all the odds, but they're just so inconsistent. You'll notice that one of the remarkable aspects about the Bible is that the heroes of the Bible are not perfect, they have incredible flaws. The Bible doesn't just paint these glowing pictures of saints found in the Bible. It shows them warts and all. There's a famous picture of Oliver Cromwell, if you've ever heard of it, with a big wart on his nose. And he he specifically asks, he goes, don't paint, because, you know, back back in those days, they'd always paint these beautiful pictures and, you know, gloss all over the inconsistencies. It's a fascinating story. He says, no, paint that big wart in my nose, because I want it to be authentic. I'm not sure how authentic that guy was, but, you know, I'll let you guys, uh, Whatever. Um, I hope you can find comfort in the fact that the church, the Bible, and, and, and the church itself is not filled with heroes of the faith. The church is filled with struggling plotters on their way to the goal, but often finding themselves off the path. The pastors of this church aren't champions of virtue or piety. We're sick sinners grasping for God's healing. Struggling to believe in God and trust his promises is is not uncommon. And it's really, guys, it's not even the problem if you struggle to trust and, and have doubts. But I want you to see that Abraham and Sarah struggle for faith amidst the doubts. The posture of their lives, their default mode, is to humbly depend on God. And we'll see that clearly, especially in the last chapter, 22. That doesn't mean they ignore their doubts or deny their doubts, but they seek answers. They wait for fulfillment from a posture of faith. Friends, there's a lot of voices out there right now giving you messages, giving you reasons to question God's goodness or even his existence. It's nothing new. It's been happening since Abraham and Sarah. Faithfulness to God means slowly and humbly seeking answers, getting more clarity about God, And about the world from a posture of faith and dependence upon God. Humility is crucial here, right? God is the great storyteller. And he's written us as characters in his large story. Should we be at all surprised when the characters of the story don't understand everything about the author? Or the the world the author has created? Seek clarity about God and about the world, not from a 
a position of skepticism, but one of dependence and trust. Don't deny him. Don't deny doubts. Pursue clarity as a character in a book would of the author of the story. We don't try to we don't say prove yourself to God. How arrogant. We're almost there. The birth of Isaac, the promise arrives. Finally, in chapter twenty one, the promise arrives. Let's read twenty one one through seven. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name Isaac to, to gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, "God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh at me with me." And she added, "Who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that?" that Sarah would nurse nurse children. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's an incredible reminder that God will keep his promises. Just imagine, this has taken over 25 years to come to pass. The first promise... To Abraham, in chapter 12, he was 75 years old. He's 100 right now. That's a quarter of a century. I wonder what's going on in your life right now that you can't make sense of. Is there something going on that you should think, I just cannot see what God is doing here. Why in the world is he doing this? Abraham and Sarah waited a quarter of a century to figure out why God was doing what he was doing. And they still didn't understand all of it. Friends, God is working out every detail of your life for a million different purposes. Most of which you will not know at the time that you're going through it. It might not be clear in a few months. It might not be clear in a few years. It might not be clear in a few decades. It might not ever be clear. In fact, this promise wouldn't be fulfilled until 2,000 years later, would it? This is why you have to operate based on what he has told us. That he's going to work everything out for your good as a Christian, because he loves you. I don't know why God made Abraham and Sarah wait 25 years. Perhaps it had something to do with all the lessons of faith they would need to learn in the meantime. Maybe all those lessons of faith and faithlessness were exactly what Abraham needed to prepare him for one final test. In chapter 22, the final scene, sacrifice of Isaac and Abraham's faithfulness. This hardly needs any exposition. I'm just going to read it because it's such a beautifully written story although horrific at the same time. Genesis 22, 1 through 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he carried him the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, 
Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, here's the oath, that because of you, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and throughout and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. If you aren't very familiar with the Bible, you might think this story is horrific. Perhaps even sadistic. You should know that the Bible repeatedly condemns the practice of child sacrifice. Child sacrifice was quite common in ancient Near Eastern religions, so it would have been very common in their day. In fact, God destroys all the nations living in Canaan, particularly because they, they sacrifice their children to the gods. There's good reason to believe that Abraham believed God would actually spare his son. After all, he knows the promise has to come through Isaac. The book of Hebrews comments on this very narrative and says, Abraham reasoned that God would even raise him from the dead. So Abraham believed that God would somehow spare his son in some way, maybe bring him back to life. Still, the beginning of this story, God asked Abraham to leave his country. That's a hard move. But at the end, Abraham is asked to give up something far greater. His son. Not just his son, his only son. And not just his only son. The son through whom all the world would receive blessings. As Abraham walks up the mountain, his whole life hangs in the balance. God doesn't provide a solution. If he doesn't raise Isaac up from the dead, his whole life has been meaningless. Can you imagine what he's thinking? What will I tell Sarah? If God doesn't provide a solution, she'll kill me. Abraham entrusted every fiber of his being to God in that moment. God does provide a solution. As Isaac lies bound, helpless on the altar, the knife ready to come down on him, God steps in and provides a substitute. A ram. Abraham proves himself faithful, a faithful covenant partner, and God provides an oath for the covenant. But what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with Jesus in the larger story of the Bible? In Abraham, we see a small picture of God's heart in this final story. You see, you and I rightfully sit where Isaac lay naked and bound. Ready to receive God's judgment and deserving God's judgment because we are sinners. 
And God is, disturb, is determined in his love to rescue us. He's determined to have a covenant relationship with us. And the only way to do it is for God to send his son as a sacrifice for us. But unlike Abraham, for God, there is no substitute for his son because he is the substitute. Unlike Abraham, God doesn't just stop just short and provide a substitute. No. God pours his full wrath out on his son because he has our unrighteousness upon him. He hears his son say, Father, why have you forsaken me? Remember in Genesis 15, God walks through, God passes through the split animal part saying, May this curse come upon me, Abraham, if you don't remain faithful to this covenant. As Jesus is on the cross, God was taking Abraham's curse on himself. God was taking our curse on himself so that we could receive God's blessing. If you're trusting tonight in anything to rescue you from judgment, from God's judgment, other than Jesus, you will meet that curse. You'll find yourself bound on the altar, helpless, and there will be no substitute for you. Your works, your religious sensitivity, being a family man, good neighbor, hard worker, will not be enough to shield you from God's righteous judgment against sin and injustice. He takes rightness that seriously. You need a substitute. And there is only one pure enough to stand in the way. It's Jesus. Trust in him. Put your identity in him. Depend on him. As we close, I just want to send you off from here to where we're going to be going. Jesus fulfills this prom- the promises given to Abraham at the beginning. The covenant with Abraham had three promises, remember? And these three promises are going to be worked out through the rest of Genesis. So we'll get a glimpse to how they're fulfilled at the very end. First, God promised to give Abraham a land. The land was important because it was where God would restore his presence. It would, the land represented what God would bring us back into, his presence. When Jesus shows up, he announces that the kingdom of God is in your midst. The presence of God is here, not in a place, not in a piece of real estate, in a person. Second, God promised Abraham a great nation. A people marked off from the world that would display God's kingdom to the world. Galatians 3 tells us that Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. The one singular Israelite who was a faithful covenant partner with God. And through uniting ourselves to him, we can become faithful partners, children of Abraham as well. Lastly, God's promise, God promises Abraham, Abraham's offspring will be God's blessing to all nations. Israel never brought God's blessing to all nations. They become like the nations. But Jesus faithful to the end, dies in order to bring salvation not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And this church is representative of that. And it's fitting that the marching orders 
of Jesus to his followers at the end of the end of Matthew are go and dis- make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Father, you've weaved together a beautiful story and stories embedded into the great story. Lord, I'm conscious that all of us have different things going on in our lives. We're weaving our narratives and trying to figure out how we fit into this world. And I pray one thing this evening. I pray that each person in this room would consider how to orient their life around this one story. If they do that, they'll take something like the church seriously because it is the place where God's kingdom is found. It's how you become a child of Abraham. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.